Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so honored that you would join me here today on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Jim Belcher, and we're going to talk with him about his brand new book called Cold Civil War, Overcoming Polarization, Discovering Unity, and Healing the Nation. And as you could probably uh, guess, we are uh, diving into a conversation today that um, that that maybe people maybe you don't want to talk about but that's one of the things that we want to do here on the learner's corner is create safe places to have difficult conversations and that's one of the things that drives a lot of what we do here on the podcast and the reason is is because actually we're going to get into uh, the reason why it's important that we talk about these things because if we if we don't talk about these things then they just they don't go away they bubble up and they continue to grow and grow. And it's almost like uh, we we work ourselves into something um, to where before we know it, we just explode because we haven't been able to talk about these things at all. And so that's what we want to do here on The Learner's Corner is create an environment to have these conversations and to talk about these things. And maybe, maybe you do feel like you have a place to where you can talk about these things, or maybe, maybe you don't. But regardless of wherever you find yourself today, I'm really glad that you're here with us on the podcast. And so with that, let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. Jim Belcher is a political philosopher, researcher, and uh, writer. He previously served as president of Providence Christian College in Pasadena, California, and was the founding lead pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Newport Beach, California. He also has uh, got his PhD from uh, Georgetown University, and he is the author of In Search of Deep Faith and Deep Church, which won a 2010 Christianity Today Book Award in Church Pastoral Leadership. And today we are talking uh, about his most recent book, which came out called Cold Civil War. We'll get into uh, what that means if you're not familiar with it. And the subtitle, Overcoming uh, Polarization, Discovering Unity, and Healing a Nation, which is something that I'm very interested in uh, talking about and learning about as well because it it's not something that i am extremely well uh educated and though uh i do know i was gonna say i guess i do know a thing or two about it but mainly it's because of reading books like this and this is something that uh very much has my attention as well um because i'm trying to figure out how how can we be more unified in the midst of all of this um polarization just as the subtitle says and so without any further wait uh, here is my conversation with Jim Belcher. Well, Jim, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. It's great to be here, Caleb. Thank you. Yeah, and man, whenever I saw your book, I was like, oh man, I gotta have, I gotta have you on the podcast because this is such a, um, it's a timely book. And yet it's also something that we've probably been dealing like the, the, the problem is something that we've been dealing with for a while. And so just as we're getting started, um, you know, the book is called cold civil war and I would just love your thoughts and kind of your definition of like, what makes, what makes a cold civil war? Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's, it's easy to to explain it's just it's not a hot war so it's cold 
So there's no a hot war, obviously, as bombs being dropped, right? And armies fighting. Um, and but cold means the, it, it's not it hasn't turned into a hot war, but we are obviously in the middle of some kind of a civil war uh, in our country. Um, and it just seems to get a little worse every day. I mean, I think it's been brewing for decades, but I think certainly, you know, when I first started thinking about a book for InterVarsity uh, was about halfway through the Trump administration. And I could just see the divisions on social media. I could see it at the college where I was the president. Um, you, could, you could just feel it on the news and something had, was going on that was even more so than say the Obama administration uh, before that. And I, it just felt like we were heading toward, towards a civil war. And I came across, I didn't actually invent the term cold civil war. I got it by, from a, a scholar uh, and a statesman called Angelo Cotavia. Um, and I, I borrowed from him and I credit him for it. And I thought it perfectly captures what we're after. But I got to tell you, you know, we chose that. InterVarsity liked it. Um, and I'll explain in a second about exactly, you know, a little more about it and the, the people who are, you know, that are involved in the two sides. But I have almost a week doesn't go by where something else is going on in the world. And I think, oh boy, am I going to have to change this title? Is it, it's, we just feel like we're on the verge of a hot civil war. Um, and, yeah. um, you know, it, it just seems to get ratcheted up and ratcheted up um, each week. So my prayer is that that never, that never happens. It stays cold and it gives us a chance to kind of find some unity in our country but really what, what, what it is, is it, I start right at the beginning of the book, I say, you know, it feels like we have two different countries, right? Two different views of the constitution, two different views of our history, two different views of where we are presently in the country and where we wanna go. And these two sides just seem completely at odds uh, and it, with just not able to work together. Um, and, I, and I start by that and I, 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 you know, I bring a lot of social science into the, into the book to say, you know, others are seeing this, the studies are showing this, that we're, we're at a, an inflection point, I think, in our country. And if we don't figure out how these two sides are gonna get together uh, and work together, then I think we're, we're heading towards something um, that may not be good. Yeah. And I would just love to hear, I mean, you you alluded to it a little bit about whenever you started working on this book is right in the middle of the Trump administration. I would love to hear for you kind of like the, like what led you to go, yeah, I I, I need to write this book and almost, I don't, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but almost like a responsibility to like, hey, I need to do something about this. Well, that's, that's really exactly right. I mean, when I finally said, I've got to do this and the church really needs it. I mean, it was a combination of uh, I feel a responsibility as a, as a pastor and a professor. I feel a, a responsibility uh, to to help. But I, you know, I also felt like if the church doesn't start leading, um, we're going to be we're going to be in trouble, uh, both inside the church and in in our country. I mean, we represent a huge voting block, and I've I've really felt like our leaders have been missing in action completely. And 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 that conviction of mine has grown even more during COVID. Um, and so I started thinking about it and. You know, and I also said, well, gosh, you know, how, how many people in the church are both ordained ministers and at the same time have PhDs in political philosophy? And I thought, you know, when I first started church planning 30 years ago, people could not, I mean, I could have had a degree in basket weaving. I mean, what political philosophy? They had no idea or any interest in knowing what that was about. Whereas now, if I say that, it's like, whoa, that's a timely degree. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it really has. And I thought, you know, somebody's got to explain what's going on, the kind of the origins of this conflict, 
the, the present uh, conflict that's going on now all the way up to the present day and then where it's going to go. And I felt like I had the training to be able to do that and the categories to do that. And, uh, you know, I went to InterVarsity Press and I said, this is what I, what I want to do. And uh, they, they agreed. Um, and it, you know, from two years into the Trump administration now to a year into the Biden administration, uh, there's, there was no doubt that this was the right thing for me to do and spend my time doing. Because if we needed it then, we sure need it more, even more now. Yeah. And one of the things that I really appreciate that you do in the book is you, uh, and you, you already alluded to it as well, is you look at the moment and go, hey, this actually didn't start like in the last five years. This started, like you said, decades ago. And so I would just kind of love to, you know, talk about that of like, where where did the origins of of this movement to where we are today start? Yeah. So I, you know, the, one of the terms that I use certainly in the last third of the book is that how do we regain a new vital center? And I take the term vital center from Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who wrote a book in the late 40s talking about a, the vital center in the U.S., and saying that for the most part, it existed. Now he was, um, he's a man of the left. He was writing for the left and he was trying to warn people on the left that there is a radical element in, in his party and in his, uh, uh, on the left that is dangerous. Now, at the end of the day, he said, oh, we're strong enough. We have a strong enough creed in America. We, we know what we believe in our democratic principles that it can sustain that. But that's, he was saying there was a, a vital center. And what I do in the book is I just show over one of, the, one of the first chapters is how that vital center broke down. And it broke down fundamentally because by the time that kind of the, the, the liberal intelligentsia of the, of the 50s and 60s came along, they loved democratic principles, but they did not want to root it or ground it in anything transcendent. So whether that was the Bible or the Declaration of Independence or, or natural law, natural rights, they didn't want anything to do with that. And they just thought, hey, this is all kind of common sense people and Americans, we can all believe this and it's gonna be strong enough. And it wasn't. Um, the 60s was unrelenting, uh, hitting at the roots of, of our, our traditions, our grounding, what, what America stood for. And they just pounded away, pounded away, and pounded away. And I think it's pretty clear that people on the left and the right both agree that the 60s won the culture war. Um, and we're living in their world now, not a prior, a world prior to 1950s. Um, now there's some good things that came, came out of that, obviously civil rights movement and the, the need to finally correct what we didn't correct in the civil war, uh, that had to happen. So there's some good things, but also a lot of other things that have cut the roots out from underneath our constitutional republicanism. And that's what, that's what we're dealing with now. And then once I explain that, I then have a, the, the largest section of the book is the middle section where I show how that led to polarization. Once we lost the kind of the glue, the public philosophy that was holding us together, it just, we just flew off into what I call into, you know, the four quadrants, two on the left and two on the right. Um, and we just, we just keep going further and further apart. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the lack of, um, you know, I think in the, in the book, you maybe refer to it as like the, uh, what's the vital center that you talk about? There isn't a shared vital center or a shared, uh, values or, or foundation in that. Um, and you said that, that, that eroding, what, what, or anything else led to the eroding of, of that throughout the years. 
Well, I mean, if, if you go back to our, you know, our founding, you know, there as much as they were men of the enlightenment, they still had a really strong sense in natural rights and a strong sense in rooted in even medieval natural law, right? And many, many of the, the founders, we often hear that they, oh, they were deists and very few were deists. The, the vast majority were, were either professing believers or they at least appreciated it. They understood its importance. So even if they weren't churchgoers, they appreciate it. And so there was a grounding underneath uh, what, 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 is called natural right grounding underneath how we live underneath what we view as uh, as truth and when we look at things like equality goodness truth beauty all of those kind of virtues they believed in a kind of a transcendent grounding underneath it by the time the 50s and the 60s 1950s and 60s came along they they didn't want that anymore and so that was that was the ground that was cut from underneath the system but they were smart too. I mean, their, their goal wasn't because they wanted the American system to have a different grounding. Um, they wanted it, they mostly wanted to get rid of the entire system. Um, I mean, and that's, mm -hmm. they didn't like it at all. And they knew if they were going to do that, they had to chip away at the transcendent grounding underneath of it, underneath it. And that's what they, I think they have successfully do. Now, you know, that by we got the 60s and then when a lot of those young radicals then became professors in the 80s and 90s uh, that they were the ones that really brought postmodernism into the academy um, for a while you know in the 90s when i was in graduate school postmodernism was was all the rage which was a you know a total attack on truth whether it came from christianity or even the enlightenment and and then after that eventually by 2000s the year 2000 they realized we can't we can't live without any grounding or any morality or any ethics or any future we can't even have conversations in postmodernism if every if everything is dismissed as as power and so eventually they started kind of uh, adopting certain views that they liked and they be they became uh, reified uh, and the, it became almost like a new religion it became a new ethic it became of the and this is the far left i'm describing and i go into great detail mm -hmm. in the book it became a whole new standard to live by. Um, and that's that's kind of where we are today is there's there's all, all these competing visions of what the good is uh, fighting. Yeah, and w one of the things that I absolutely love that you do in the book, and uh, I can't uh, I can't remember what the exact line of it is, um, but you mentioned how there's uh, in both in both parties and on both sides, there's like there's enemies or enemy ideas um in each party and you know we've talked a little bit about the left i would love for you to touch upon on the right and what what that looks like as well yeah so what i tried to do because i mean these are huge obviously huge concepts in in philosophy and political philosophy right and i'm trying to explain them in about 17 or 18 pages right um but one of the things that i thought i could do to be helpful is is you know every 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 political philosophy has a narrative um, and it has a story embedded in it. It has a once upon a time story. So once upon a time, there was a golden age, then something bad happened. We're no longer in that golden age. We, um, and in order to get to back to that golden age, we have to do this or X, whatever that is. And then within that narrative, there's always a bad guy. There's someone who helped bring on the fall from the golden age. And there's some, there's a bad guy keeping us from, to, re, you know, returning to that golden age. And so there's, en there's a sense of enemies built right in. And so every one of the, the quadrants 
in the political positions that I described, there's a there's kind of a natural enemy. There's someone that they they tend to dislike more than anyone else. And of course, in in retail politics, that works great because you can raise a lot of money that way. Uh, and, and and some of it is what used for you know cynically to raise money, but some of it is that there are enemies and there are people blocking that view, uh, both on the on the left and the right. Yeah, you mentioned the the right. So um, no, I'm I vote voting wise, I'm an, I'm an independent. Um, I don't have any greater love for Republicans than Democrats, particularly the ones in D.C. To me, most of them are pretty much caught up in the system, and they get bought off pretty quickly when they go to D.C. There's so much money to do that. Um, but what and so what I try and do is when I show the polarization, it may have started with the left. Um, but it was quickly picked up by people on the right as well. And the polarization, the, this loss of truth and loss of grounding eventually has impacted or influenced both sides of the political debate. Um, and so I spend equal as much, as much time looking at the polarization and the extremism on the right as I do on the left. Um, and what I show eventually is that these, these we've pulled apart so far that they start mirroring one another. I, um, I was just on my walk today around the city and I was reading Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And, and he said, he was talking back in, I think it's in the four, 1940s. And he was saying that, you know, communists are really super fascists, you know, and you could say fascists are really just communists. So when you go way out to the right and to the left and you get, you get that kind of central planning and you get that kind of, you know, government overreach, um, that just wipes out any type of liberty, the right and the left are going to look almost like mirror images of one another. And we're seeing that on the far right extreme, you'll find they have their own kind of white identity politics. And when you go to the left, they have their own kind of identity politics. They also, they have, they have a similar type of enemies. They attack the same way. They use the internet the same way. Um, they're, they're, there's a lot of similarities. I show also how Libertarians often look a lot like people on the left when it comes to their their you know kind of their moral philosophy, their ethics, and even as they want to start controlling things as a new oligarchy, they look a lot like the left might who wants the political correctness coming in. And so there's there's lots that, that, that of overlap uh, between the two sides. Yeah, and on that, let's let's talk about your quadrant as well because I think that is. Uh... I mean, literally, I I feel like I'm just repeating myself, but it's because it's such a an enlightening book. Um, but you do such a good job of like diving into the nuance of it, and I would just love for your uh, to talk about your journey, like to like discovering the quadrant and realizing that it's more complex and about the quadrant as well. Yeah, yeah, that's what I call you know that's kind of my was my big breakthrough. I mean, when I there's a couple things going on, Caleb. I mean, when I was going through graduate school and I was going through a degree in political philosophy, I mean, you're just getting so much thrown at you, right? Class after class. And I'm just trying to make sense of it, right? You know, what is the difference between classical liberalism that's 200, you know, go back a couple hundred years with Mill and Locke, and how is that different than the progressive liberalism of today? And okay, conservatism is, but is that libertarianism? And I'm I'm starting to say, man, I've got to get a chart here. I mean, I I just not smart enough to hold that all in my brain. And I started mapping it. And so I just did what I would thought. I, you know, you have a, a left and a right spectrum and with a line in the middle that might be the centrist. And for years, I tried to kind of 
map those and show how that the, the two extremes on the end would, might come around and touch one another, almost like in a circle. But it still, it just wasn't completely working. And here I am, I'm like, I wanna, I wanna write a book where uh, I can explain the basics really of, of this to my, to my audience. And what happened is one day I just thought, wait a sec, you know, what I'm seeing is that on the left and the right, there are, there are people who, who both stress order and there are those who stress freedom. So if you look at the left, right, all through my growing up, 80s, or from the 60s, 70s, 80s, it was all about liberation. It was all about breaking from tradition. It was freedom. It was liberty. It was 60s, right? I mean, it was, you know, let it all hang out. And then all of a sudden around 2000, I'm being told I can't do this. I have to do this. I, I have to speak this way. You have to believe this. And I thought, and these were people coming from the left. And I thought, okay, wait a second here. When did the left become like Puritans? No offense to Puritans. I'm just using it the, the way our culture uses Puritans. But um, yeah. it was like, it was crazy. And on the right, I was like, well, wait, traditionalist, the Christian right, morality, you know, the Bible, family. And then we've got this thing in the, on the right called libertarians that are all about economic freedom, moral freedom. And I thought, this is crazy. And that's when I realized there's an order side and a freedom side or a liberty side on each of the sides of the, of the left right spectrum. So I turned my paper um, and I drew another axis down so that I could have a quadrant. And then on the left, I had on the left, I had two, an order and a freedom. And on the right, I had an order and a freedom. So then what happened is I said, oh, and I went back to my studies. And at that point, the first year, all I did was read. I just I read and I read and I read to try and figure out, okay, what am I gonna do and how am I gonna explain all that? But every time I would pick up a book, I started noticing that I could put whoever I was reading in one of the four quadrants. Uh, sometimes they would give it away, oh, they're, they're on the left, and then I could tell they stress more freedom. And I, I just began to put them in there. And then what happened was even more interesting. I said, well, wait, there's some people that are more towards the, what I now call the vital center. And there are people who are way out on the extremes here. And so I, then I, I bisected uh, each of the quadrants and I put a one, two, and a three going out. And I started then grouping people into those three. And what I noticed is that the two and the three in each of the four quadrants started representing those who are moving away from the vital center. Um, and I, I began to see patterns as they went further out. And I began, began to see that those who were kind of remaining in the one we're still trying to hold in the one in all four quadrants, by the way, they were trying to hold on to a grounding. They were trying to ground it in something that, that the, the founders would have recognized, you know, natural right, natural law, some revelation. Um, and they, they were trying to figure out how, what a constitutional Republic would look like grounded in that with developing people of virtue and, and all that, that I describe eventually describe. And so then I said, well, what I'm going to do in the, the middle part of the book is I'm going to look at and show how, from the 60s, it, we went into the, it, it kind of bled into the polarizations of the two positions and then the three positions. And by the end of the, by the end, I take the reader through that. I, I, I think it's pretty clear why we are so amazingly polarized and, and how it's gotten there and who's exploiting it. Um, that's one thing we haven't talked about with the ruling elite ex, kind of yeah. exploiting these extremes. But I thought until I can kind of say to people like, okay, this is, do you want to live out here in these extremes? We're going to kill each other. 
Um, you know, and we've got to figure out how to get back to that new vital center where both the left and the right in our country can come together and say, this is what we can share. Because if we don't, there's no way that we can protect human rights, freedom of speech. There's no possible way uh, that we are going to be able to protect the minority voice. Um, you know, and we're, we're going to be in, we're going to be in big trouble. I mean, if you look around the world with people who don't have any semblance of constitutional republicanism, republicanism and don't even have the foundation to ever start it, uh, they're, they're not pretty places to live. I mean, they're, they're, they're dangerous, violent places, um, a lot, you know, it, it, in parts of the world. So, and I don't think anybody yeah. wants that for our country. We don't, we don't want that kind of lawlessness and that kind of a, of a, of a world. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I was curious, just as you were talking about it, is, uh, and you maybe maybe alluded to it a little bit, uh, are there common, like, traits that, like, I'm thinking of, like, the positions on the quadra of, like, the people who tend to be in the ones, you know, the twos and the threes. Are there common traits that you see among the ones, amongst the twos, amongst the threes? Well, well give me a little, what do you mean by traits? Like, um, are they nice people? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I guess... Are there are there similarities? Are there similarities between people who find themselves more in the one position, the two position, the three position, regardless of where they find themselves on the quadrant? Yes. Oh, absolutely. So one of the things, if you you know, if I had the picture of the quadrant in front of me, right? So it's it's basically the four quadrants. Is you can draw a circle around all the ones, all the twos, and all the threes, and they they mm -hmm. start sharing a lot in common. Um, and you, you can begin to see why uh, you can begin to see commonalities and 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 even some of the excesses and the extremes going on. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. and that that circle uh, where they where they there are commonalities is absolutely important in the one with the ones because that's the new vital center, and that's that's the challenge is to say how do you bring people who are on the left but in the one, the, the ones mm -hmm. and the right who are in the ones together. Um, that, that's the, that's the big challenge because we, we are so tribal, right. And so political in that sense. So we're fighting for the presidency every four years. We're fighting for our candidates to win, but it, it almost seems like betrayal. If you decide, well, I'm going to work with the other ones positions that are in the other party. But if we don't do that, we're in big trouble, as I've been saying, right? So we, we've got to, that's the, that's the challenge is, is how, how do we do that? But yes, absolutely, there are commonalities. Yeah, and I, and I can imagine that if, if I'm a one and I see someone who is, who is a different one than I am, that uh, it may not look like betrayal to the ones. Am I, am I right in thinking like that? Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. Um, I think, you know, I... Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, they, because they're going to, they're, they probably share more in common uh, mm -hmm. in, in what they love, right? And, and not what they yeah. hate. So if you look at the threes, they all kind of, they, 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 their, their hates are pretty strong, the things that they, they dislike. Um, and those aren't things that are strong enough to unify them. Right. Whereas the ones kind of have a have share more of what they do love. And I think that does unify. Yeah. Them, right. So they're going to love the Constitution more. Right? They're going to love the Declaration. They're going to love what America stands for, both in its creed and its culture. They're going to they're going to love citizenship and patriotism. And they're going to try and figure out how to live that out in a very healthy way. Right. 
So I, th I think that's, that's probably true. It's a good point. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm just working off of what you've given <laughs> me. Yeah. Uh, one of the quotes that really stood out, uh, and then I don't want to talk about, and then I want to talk about the ruling elites is, um, is around free speech as well. At least that's, that's how I'm interpreting it uh, from this quote, but you have this quote in there. Uh, and it's when people are barred from talking about strong gods, they gravitate to the most extreme version of these gods. And I would just love your thoughts on how that, how that quote applies to what we've been talking about so far and the role of free speech in that as well. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, free speech is a little bit like a safety valve, right? If you, if you allow free speech, um, people have an outlet, they have a, they can go protest, they can go talk, they can, you know, uh, you take that away from people, right? And it's eventually, you may, you may have put a lid on it, but eventually it's just going to explode out um, and people just won't take it. I mean, I, I think we're seeing that with the truckers in Canada. I'm not Canadian. I don't understand their system. I probably should know more about it. Um, but I think when you, when people aren't allowed to speak at all, um, then they, they're going to really, really, really push back. Uh, and free speech is so incredibly important. I mean, it's, it's, it's the foundation, really, of, of Western civilization and, and how we honor one another. Um, and it's incredibly important. And I think that the, you know, the more we don't allow people to have it and to think about these things, uh, they do. They gravitate. They, if they can't have the strong gods, and what Rusty Reno means by that is the strong gods, the good strong gods are, are would be religion, would be church going, would be family, would be ethics and virtue, and just the, the things that make life meaningful. Uh, those are the strong gods. But when you don't allow people those things, then they go after the false strong gods. Um, and I think that's the, that's the one of the, the places we are that's so dangerous. It, it radicalizes it, people. Um, so yeah. hopefully that helps. Yeah. Uh can you just talk about like what or give an example of what like a false strong God might look like? Yeah. I mean, on the right, a false strong God would, would be ethnic nationalism, right? So white supremacy. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't think it's nearly as big as the left thinks it is, but, but it's still, it's still there. It's an option. Still, people still believe in it. And it's really people who are going to put uh, their people at the top. Right. Um, and, and, in, in, in a superior position, that's a false strong God, but you can also have false strong gods in gender and sexuality. They can be in, uh, I'm trying to think off, off the top of the head, what other ones that, that I might mention. I mean, uh, fascism yeah. is a false strong God. Communism is a false strong God, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's talk about the ruling elite as well and how they play uh, a part in, in the quadrant and kind of how we've gotten to where we are today as well and how they operate today. Yeah. You know, this was something that was kind of developing for me as I wrote the book. It was a little, little bit of a, of a surprise when I started laying out the, 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 the different quadrant positions. Um, you know, at first I wanted to be able to, you know, just kind of say, this is what polarization is. But when I know what I began to notice is that the ruling elite were either in some of the extreme positions or they were using the extreme positions to stoke mutual hatred amongst Americans, uh, that they were actually almost using it for their own 
purposes. Uh, because if, if Americans are divided, if we can't get together, if we're always fighting one another, then it, it opens up a, a, like a power vac vacuum, which they then fill. Um, and then they, 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 take, they, take more, they take more power. Um, and I think what we've, you know, even what we've seen through COVID as the two sides, we seem to go be pulled further and further apart. I think a lot of that is often stoked by the media and the, and the big corporations. And while we're fighting one another and while we're, we're hating on one another, they're just growing bigger and bigger. Um, and what I saw, I, I didn't, I just didn't like. And I also saw that oftentimes what the ruling elite is doing is they're, they're actually destroying a lot of the things that used to unify us, whether it be town and county and our, our love of the country, our families, our institutions, our small businesses, our middle class, all of the things that made us such a strong country. And the more that they attack those things, the stronger they get. So, you know, we go through two years of lockdowns and restaurants go out of business, working class people are worse off, right? Families are worse off. Uh, we've probably lost half, you know, 30 to 40% of all small, you know, restaurants are gone. But who hasn't suffered? I mean, who's gotten rich through the last two years? It's the elites. It's the business elites. It's high tech. It's big pharma. It's Wall Street. It's the big box stores, it's Amazon, right? They're, they've, they've gone from billion, you know, doubled their size. I don't have the numbers in front. I have some in the book up to the point I was writing it, but yeah. they've, gotten, they've gotten extremely rich and everybody else has suffered. And so you have, you have that going on. And then at the same time, we have this thing going on where, where whether it's through defund the police or, or uh, just the general lawlessness, the change in bail laws going on in inner, inner cities, and they seem to get they seem to get more violent every every single year. You have to start asking yourself what's going on. And when I was writing, I came across this theory of twin insurgency that in foreign countries, what what the ruling elite will often do is they will attack from the top and they'll attack from the bottom. And so they'll put through laws or they'll do certain things through the state and through legislation, right, where um, they're pushing the middle class and they're pushing people down from the top. But then they'll also attack from the bottom through lawlessness, through crime, through uh, just letting the, the law and order uh, go. And so that so that the the people, particularly middle class businesses, flee the inner cities, and then it just becomes even more lawless. And they they continue to do that. Uh, I think, in one sense, to squeeze the middle class, but also to push the middle class down. Because the more the middle class is pushed down, the less threat there is economically to their power and to what they're doing. And as the middle class gets pushed down and gets almost disbanded in some areas. Uh, there's no rung, there's no ladder for the working class, the lower class to step up to, right? And to get up into that middle class. And for and what that does for the ruling elites is it just makes them incredibly powerful. So you have, uh, you know, I'm from California and you, you have, we have the largest divide between the rich and the poor of any state in the, in the United States. Um, and it's almost like you have, you have the feudal lords and you have the serfs. Uh, at the bottom, and everybody's, and they seem to be be okay with that. Um, and it, you know, California used to be the place of the American dream, but it, it isn't anymore because the rungs to step up on have been uh, kind of kicked out from from under people, and it's not a good situation. It's a powder keg waiting to happen.
Yeah. Talk to me about um like how do you like how do you see that stuff happening or are there are there things that you look for to go okay this is like this is the ruling elite at play oh yeah i mean well i oh i see what you're saying so how do how do you notice it what do you see yeah how do you notice it because like i'm thinking of like myself or even just like the average person you know who who doesn't have a degree in a in a political philosophy and stuff How, how can we see that or how can we be better attuned to seeing what's happening yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at, you know, so sometimes you're going to see it in the, the kind of tax breaks and the breaks that Wall Street gets, right? Whether it's the hedge funds, the banks, uh, you know, we saw this after 2008, right? They, the banks were too big to fail. And so instead of them letting them fail, which is creative destruction, they were too big. And so they, they constantly have this pipeline of money where no matter what they do, they're going to succeed. They can write the worst loans as they were doing when they were writing all these mortgage loans to people who could never pay them back. And then when the whole thing crashes down, the US government bails them out. And, and so it, places like the banking industry, the hedge fund industry, I mean, they have these sweetheart deals where they're protected. They, have, they, have, they are insulated from the ups and downs that, that, that middle America is not. I mean. When the economy goes bad and inflation goes up, there's we don't have any bank that's going to print us more money. Um, you know, and, and what we find now is that as we're trying, as it, all this printing of the money that basically goes to the people who who know the people in charge, is now you have all this money out there that is is creating this massive inflation. I mean, I, we just got our bill on. Uh, for for you know heating bill and it's gone up from usually fifty sixty dollars a month to over three hundred dollars in like just in the last few months. Well, most middle class and working class people don't have an extra couple hundred dollars or three hundred dollars every month to heat their house, and and yet those types of downturns are not going to affect the very wealthy. Uh, they they have the you know I read was reading somewhere today that the. The wealthiest one percent have something like fifty percent of all all the stocks traded, um, you know, and they get all the insider deals. When you look at, uh, I think it's um, Schweitzer's books on how Congress makes all their money on inside deals. Republicans and Democrats, right? They come in and they get all the kind of the inside trading knowledge, and or they get all the sweet deals for investments. And they come in as civil servants and they come out as multimillionaires. Everyone, whether they're not everyone, but the vast majority, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, it, both parties do it. Uh, that's the that's the ruling elite getting rich while everybody else doesn't. Another example is. Uh, with immigration, and I know this is super controversial. Um, I'm, I'm, I, my mom is is from an immigrant family. I'm, I'm very. I live in California. I'm very. I'm very pro-immigration. It's a good thing. Um, so, but when we when we look at the open borders, for instance, that we have now, effectively open borders, where two to three million people are going to cross in in the first year of the Biden in the have in the first year of the Biden administration, you have to ask yourself who benefits. It's not the people on the border in Texas, all the Latinos that live down there, all the working class people, right? It's it's not it's not the the working class in our country who whose wages go down because of all the excess labor. The people who get rich off of it are the elites. It's a massive transfer of wealth from the poorest Americans to the richest Americans. 
And then on top of that, when they ship jobs overseas, which they've been doing for the last 30 years, something like 60,000 factories in the Midwest were shut down since the 70s or 80s. Uh, you know, it just gutting those those places. And then what we then see is then, you know, these places are just then flooded with the fentanyl and flooded with all the illegal drugs, right? And the, the opioids. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And who gets rich with all the fentanyl, right? Who gets rich with it? It's all the drug companies, right? It's all, it, it's all the pharmaceutical, it's big farmer that get, gets rich. And, and America gets more and more impoverished through it. So it, it's, 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 an un, it's, a very, it's an unfair system uh, and as we wrestle with polarization, we have to be we have to be mindful that if we don't come together uh, and really work together, we're never we're we're, we're never going to have the strength to return our country and our government to a constitutional republic. And it's going to be continued to be controlled kind of by this the combination of this administrative state and this ruling class. Yeah. Uh, one other uh, term that I wanted to talk about, and I know that we've touched on a little bit, I don't think we've mentioned it specifically, is uh, you talk about Arli oligarchy. I think that's, is that how you say it? Yeah, oligarchy. oligarchy. Yeah. yeah. Would you mind just talking about that and, and how that plays into it as well? Yeah, it's, a, it's just, a, it's the fancy Aristotelian, Aristotle's word for the ruling elite. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's just another way of looking at it, right? But instead of, you know, you have, instead of, a, it's, it's basically an aristocracy that's gone bad, right? There, Aristotle mm -hmm. looks at it, the different models that, that you can have. Uh, obviously, we, we want democracy. Um, but he says that when when the elites, the aristocracy is in charge, when they become bad, they become an oligarchy. So what we really have is an elite who's decided that they're going to they're going to make all the decisions in our country. And so they they no matter how much you hear them talk about our democracy or this is anti-democratic or that's anti-democratic, they don't they don't give a hoot about democracy. Uh, they're not they're not listening to anyone they're doing what they want and what's best for them and that's that's the pure definition of oligarchy it's a small group of people um, and in our country it could be a few thousand that control most of the the reins uh, they control the you know the government they control big business they control most of the institutions in our country um, and they're the ones kind of directing where we go so that's what i mean by oligarchy yeah uh one other thing that i wanted to just ask you about is there anything and i know that uh, there could be a lot of answers, but is there anything top of mind about uh, pol uh, polarization that is leading us more towards that, that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? No, I mean, just, you know, uh, no, just to reiterate that, that, that we don't realize that the more, you know, as I've said, the more polarized we get that the more they, the ruling elite benefits, right? So we have a real incentive to work together with the number ones on the other side of the of the spectrum, right? So if you're a Republican yeah. and you're number one, work with the Democrats and vice versa, because until we get back to that center, which I think is a my a, a, you know my description of constitutional republicanism, um, where we we can't fight off. Uh, this takeover of our of our government and our culture. Yeah, and let's talk about that. How do we move more towards that center, that that common ground that you're talking about? What can we do? Yeah, it's great. I mean, I think a lot about that, right? So, I mean, that's partly my persuasive 
project is how, how to get us there. You know, some of it is to, is to kind of say, this is how bad it is and this is where we are uh, so that we really want and we hunger, we kind of hunger to be back there and to begin formulating that. Uh, there's a couple times in the book where I, I quote different people on the left and right and say, where they're just hope, they say there's no hope. Um, there's, there's no way that the two sides can work together. There's no, there's no bridge to walk across to get there. And I just, I can't, I'm not ready to give up. I mean, that's just too, too depressing. So I want to create a bridge in which both sides can walk across and begin working together. And I think there's different words that I use, but I'm, I'm really trying to present such a positive image of what this could look like that people want it and people desire it, but it's going to take a lot of work. Uh, it's going to take a lot of work, not only to kind of understand what this original synthesis was. And I, I go through and I look at kind of the history of our founding, where I look at how there was a synthesis between constitutionalism uh, and then republicanism, uh, our civic republicanism and those traditions, and then how the founders thought, well, okay, that gets us partly there, but then we have a market economy and you know self-interest rightly understood and that gets us a little bit further towards towards freedom and the kind of country we want and then the fourth piece was i call it the, the statesman's soul it's the statesman who understands how to hold the other three number ones kind of together and keeps them well balanced the problem is right now right is we don't have statesmen or very few of them in washington who have any clue what that looks like Right? I mean, they're, they're, they, they're, they just don't do much. I mean, they're busy, probably spend three quarters of their time raising money and, and working with powerful interest groups to keep the money train going, uh, that there's just not much time to, to study and understand what, our, what the founding was and what it would look like for today. Um, but so that's why I think the great hope is within the church. I think the church tends to have a desire and a passion for knowledge and for truth and for understanding these things. And I think there's a great opportunity, like a heroic opportunity uh, for church leaders to become not only students of this, but the leaders of their congregations in their community to say, this is what the new vital center looks like. This is how we come together. This is how we move beyond polarization. And I can, I can help you get there. Let's do that. I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing in the book. Polarization yeah. is, is real. We're tearing apart one another while the ruling elite gets stronger. But here's where this is how we can get back to the golden age, if, if to use that that term. Here's yeah. how we can move forward together. Um, and I, I really, really do believe that, that the church is going to have to do that hard work. They're going to have to discover public philosophy and what that what a shared public philosophy looks like. Yeah. Can you kind of tease out like what what can someone do who is like yeah i'm i'm on board i want to do that you know maybe i'm a part of a church or i'm a pastor or i'm a church leader something like that what can we do to start moving in that direction well the first thing is i think to just stop for a bit and do the hard study you know spend the time thinking through i mean that's whether it's my book or other books to say okay what is a public what does this public philosophy look like what does this new vital center look like and then how do i train my congregation now this doesn't mean uh, preaching politics from the from the pulpit it, there may be opportunities for for that and i'm not talking about partisan politics but mm -hmm. you know as i say in the book uh 
a principal's not party. Uh, there may be opportunities yeah. to train the congregation in these principles. Uh, I think adult Sunday schools, book studies, there's all kinds of opportunities for adult education, training our children to think this way. It, I, you know, Caleb, this is a long-term project. I mean, I know that we feel this sense of urgency, like if we don't fix this fast. I, so I think there's, there's, there's urgency. We, we, we've got to put the fire out. But at the same time, we're talking about a generational project where we have to begin oh, yeah. to train, starting with our children all the way up to, to know what it means to be constitutional Republicans, what it means to live in this kind of a system. Um, and it's, and it's long-term. So, so, you know, obviously, obviously the study, I think getting together with groups uh, to, and, and work these things out, but I think there's also, there's opportunities still just to get involved in, in, in local politics and local in the party and in, in serving your, serving the community. Um, building institutions, you know, churches used to be the place where the best institutions came out of, whether it was, you know, whether it was hospitals or whether it was social justice or uh, whether it was taking care of the poor. Um, I mean, you look at Rotary, I mean, whatever it was, it used to be Christians that were the great institution builders. And I, I think we need to get back to what Tocqueville in his, his great book, Democracy in America, calls these mediating structures. They're the structures that stand between the individual and the state or the ruling elite. And they kind of they they kind of become a buffer or a protection, but they also give tremendous meaning. And we just don't join things anymore. I mean, that that that's been done since the you know the 50s, the 60s, they were the great joiners, but we don't do that anymore. And I think Christians need to get back to that. Yeah. Uh, two thoughts that I had, and one one of them is a question. I, I completely agree with you on the the year. Like this is this is a long term. Uh, movement because like I was just thinking as you were talking like it's taken us you know 60 years to get to where we are today and it's it's very naive of us to think that we can solve this in about four or five um, it's going to take decades and probably it's probably stuff that um, like it may start with us and it does not end with us either absolutely yeah yeah I mean if you think about the best of western civilization it took thousands of years to form um, it, it's a long-term project that we all have to be in. And I think this is where, you know, parents, particularly the ones that have small children can start that, start the process, but we need to be involved in Christian education. We need to be involved in rebuilding our colleges. Uh, we need to be involved in rebuilding our, our, our small towns. It's a, it's a long-term project. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what might be like a, a first step like i'm thinking on um like let's say it's somebody who is um in a, in a leadership position could be inside the church could be outside of church but is a christian um and then someone who is more of like hey i'm like i'm just an individual i'm a follower like what would you say is like the next step for both of those groups of people yeah i mean in part you know my book is I, I wrote the book for that very reason to, to give pastors yeah. the tools to be able to first figure out what their study assignment is. Uh, I mean, there's, I absolutely have what thousands of footnotes, right. in books that they can read in each of the quadrant positions in the new vital center. Uh, there's a lifetime of study there. Uh, and I tried to give them the shortcut, but I've also given them a roadmap. I mean, the quadrant system is a very practical roadmap to begin teaching your congregation through and teach them about why the twos and the threes have led to polarization and then how they can rally around the ones. 
um, you know, and, and figure out how to do that. Um, I, I, I've, I've dedicated the next five or 10 years, maybe the rest of my life to help pastors do that. So they can certainly contact me if they need help. Um, I'm working on, on different uh, curriculum or, or helps in that and video series to help them figure it out themselves, but also figure out how to teach their congregation. But it, it's really what the book is for. Yeah. Uh, for the person who's listening and they're like, okay, I'm, I'm not sure that this is the church's responsibility to actually dive into this. Like, I think that's somebody else's responsibility. What, what would you say to that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You hear that. You hear that all. I mean, to me, when we, when I, I would probably say my life, I don't have a life verse, you know, generally, but one yeah. of the verses that I go back to over and over again is Romans 12, one and two, where, where because of the mercies of God, we're to present our bodies as living sac- mm-hmm. sacrifices to God. And part of that living sacrifice, right, obviously is worship on Sunday, but it's presenting our entire mind, the renewing of our mind. Um, and there's, there's a negative too in there. It's don't let your, don't get squeezed into the mold of the world. And then by, and then have your mind renewed by God's, by God's grace. So that, that the negative is if you're not going to get squeezed into the mold of the world, then you need to know how, what the mold of the world looks like so that you can avoid it. Right. And some of that is just knowing how deceptive the, 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 the strong false gods are to use that phrase. And that takes study, that takes insight, that takes wisdom to know what those are so you can say no to it. But then we have to go through mind renewal. And part of our mind renewal is understanding politics. Part of it's understanding economics, part of it's understanding our sexuality, part of it's our our growth in Christ. That's all part of mind renewal. And since the vast majority of our life is lived out in the public realm, either at our jobs or in the public square somewhere, uh, we need to know how to how to live it. I mean, so it seems to me that it's a big part of the Christian life, right, to to know how how to do that. And it, politics is so much more than just uh, voting every every election. It's about our life together. Uh, it's about citizenship. It's about what we think about our country, what we think about our neighbor, how we help our neighbor. All of those things are part of it. And it seems to me that's that's a really important part of what, what discipleship is. Um, again, yeah, partisan politics? No, not so much. I mean, you, great great for conversation and it has to factor into it. But the principles, principles behind public life and citizenship are very important for Christians to know. Hmm. Yeah. I got one other question that I want to ask you, but before, uh, before I ask it, is there anything that we haven't talked about concerning the book that is just on top of mind? You want to make sure that we talk about? No, I mean, I, I, yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. I mean, you know, I've got a whole chapter at the end after I look at the, 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 the polarization. And then I look at, uh, I look at the new vital center. And then I finally, I, one of the biggest insights, last insights I had towards the end of the book was, okay, where does the grounding of, of divine revelation come in, right? Where does the Bible yeah. come in? I, I talked a lot about natural rights and natural law. And in the reform world, we call that general revelation, right? Or, you know, Proverbs calls it wisdom. And you see in Psalm, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, you see these the, the aspect of how God speaks through his creation. That's all in there. And then I thought, well, wait a sec. The Christian right tends to be the focus. They, they are the ones that seem to talk about the Bible the most. But it's kind of gotten a little hijacked by them 
Um, then you, you know, so, but, but every other quadrant that I looked at, there were Christians in them. And, I, and so I talk about that. I give a representative or, or sampling of who those people are. So I thought, well, where does Christianity come in and how does it factor in? And because of ultimately the grounding is, is divine, right? It's, it, there, it, 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 it's a transcendent grounding that God has put here into our conscience. And that's when the insight came. I was reading James Caesar, who's one of my favorite political philosophers. At, he's at the University of Virginia. And, and he said, he uses the phrase that the reason that people, when, when they were writing the Constitution, they weren't up in arms at that time because God's name wasn't in the Constitution is because they believed there was a second Constitution. And the second Constitution, almost that went along with it or even underneath it, was Christianity. Uh, and for me, that was like, that's it. That's it. There, there, is, there is a sense of divine truth that is even more central than the, vital, the new vital center. And it's, it, it, it holds all four together. Um, and it ultimately gives them meaning and keeps them from flying off into the polarized number threes on the quadrant. And that was a really, really big insight. And that's when I realized I don't need to talk about the role that religion plays in each quadrant as much as I need to talk about how it becomes the foundation under the foundation. And so I ended up doing a whole chapter on that. And I really, the, the philosopher that I went to, that he's actually a sociologist, was Alexis de Tocqueville in a book that I love. And I think no one, nobody presents uh, the, the view of the spirit, spirit of liberty and spirit of religion better than Tocqueville. Um, and so, uh, you know, I would, I commend that chapter to the pastors that are listening. Yeah. Uh, last thing I want to ask you is I know that like for, for the person who's just listening, this could be very overwhelming. And I imagine like for this, like this is like, this is a pursuit that you have dedicated part of your life to like years of your life to. And I imagine it could be very discouraging at times. What helps you keep going or what helps you remain, I guess, encouraged as well to keep going? Yeah, uh, that's a great, great question. I mean, it, it, and what keeps me going in you know, 2022 is really not different than Alexis de Tocqueville, who I, I just talked about. I mean, there's a, there's a biographical story of when after he had finished the first book of Democracy in America that he just, he, he, which was all about American democracy or constitutional republicanism. And before he even got to the second book, he was so discouraged because he thought the forces arrayed or aligned against it. Now, this is in the 1830s, were already so powerful that he was not confident that this fledgling republic was even going to stand or make it. And he was just really discouraged. Um, and he was seeing the kind of the forces of, of, of dictators around the world, and particularly in Europe and in France, and he thought it's not going to make it. But at the end of the day, what he looks to and what gave him the hope to write book two was a sense of God's divine providence, his sovereignty. And so when I get really discouraged about the American experiment and whether it can be renewed and recharged and restored, uh, I have to look to the sovereignty of God and, uh, and say, you know, we have pulled through in the past when it looked like it was dire and this country was going to completely fall apart, you know, particularly during the Civil War. And we pulled through and enough 
enough people rallied back to constitutional republicanism and fought off oligarchy uh, that we were able to restore what we have. And I think that's what, what gives me hope is ultimately that, that that could happen again. And I want to I want to be part of it. I want to you know throw my oar in the water. I I, I want to here's my Here's my book, and you're absolutely right. I've spent a, a, a lifetime studying that, and in some ways, this book is for me is my you know gift to the church. I hope I write more, but it's certainly what I I want to see, uh, not only the restoration of of constitutional republican, but I, I want to see the church at the forefront, leading and demonstrating what it looks like um, to uh, to live our lives together in this country. Yeah. Well, Jim, I know that people are going to want to, you know, keep up with you and get the book. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah, great. I appreciate you asking. I just started a Substack, which is, you know, like a, like a Patreon, but it's it's more for writers it's at, at Jim Belcher at uh, dot Substack dot com. Uh, they can also follow me, uh, you know, social media, real Jim Belcher. Uh, I think Gab is is, is that and and uh, Getter and also Twitter. They can follow me on those. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing the work and thanks for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks. It's been a, it's been a real joy. Thanks, Caleb. You know, I think my big takeaway uh, coming out of that conversation is, well, really, there's there's so many things. There's so many things that I could say uh, that I learned uh, from this book, that I learned from this conversation with Jim as well. Uh, but the thing that it makes me think about the most is just what we were talking about towards the end of the importance of the, the capital C church engaging in these types of conversations and not in a way that is, uh, you know, partisan or favors one party or another, but so much of this stuff uh, intersects with like with the gospel and what it means to usher in the kingdom of God, of what it means to to treat people well, what it means to, to love people well and how um, and and how to this is this is such a you know church cliche but how to do life well and trying to figure out all all of that stuff and and it makes me think of um you know we we didn't talk about it in there and i can't exactly remember uh where i heard uh this idea from before but um you know the church had the opportunity to get involved uh, in these conversations 60 years ago, whenever they were happening. And, you know, as Jim mentioned, there was a time to where the church was the center of everything, uh, or was involved in everything that was happening. And it's almost like we did a retreat and we punted and we said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to focus on, you know, what is happening inside of our, uh, four walls. And I think it just challenges me to be, um, to be more active, to be a part of what is happening in the communities, to know what is happening in our nation, to know what is happening in the world and figuring out how can I, how can I, it's not that I bring the kingdom of God. It's that, how can I, hmm. you know, obviously I'm trying to, trying to figure this out and how, how exactly I want to say it. Well, but how can I get on board with what God is doing, all, was wanting to do already in the communities and not bring my idea of what I think God should do in our communities? Trying to get behind, God, what are you, how are you trying to usher in the kingdom of God in this county, in this town, in this city, in this nation? And how can I get on board with what you want to do 
and not presuppose my own ideas to that thing or to to the city to this whatever said place is and so yeah i think this is this is conversations that we need to be having um especially because of uh if we don't engage in these conversations it does not lead to a good outcome and we abdicate our responsibility but people's questions don't go away what they're thinking doesn't go away and so we need to engage even if it's difficult even if it's challenging and so that's kind of what I've been thinking and what I'm going to continue to think about. And I'm going to continue to talk about on the learner's corner, going to continue to um, talk with other people about on the podcast as well. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to make sure that you don't miss any episode is by subscribing or following on whatever, pi- plat- on whatever podcast platform you uh, listen on. If you have someone that you would love us to talk with on the podcast, or if you just have questions, the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com and would love to hear from you um, there as well. And I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thanks to Garrett Oler for uh, doing the editing on this podcast. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. Thanks to Jim for being on the podcast. That's all that I got for today. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.